Amen. Um, as we come to this word tonight, I uh, just want to tell you uh, a little story. It reflects something of the fact that in church, uh, we very quickly uh, form our own traditions. And we get into a bit of a routine. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, when I was student pastor in a church through in the West, well, I might as well name it, it was Airdrie Baptist Church. Um, I was preaching one night and uh, very routinely we went through the same program week after week after week. Uh, and this Sunday I decided I would change things slightly. Now, uh, in the church in Airdrie, we always, they've done away with it for some reason. They've changed the pulpit area since I was there. But we always had a choir who sat facing the preacher um, during the speaking times in any uh, order of service. And then at the point when it was time for them to sing, they would all stand up with their hymn books and they would sing in four-part harmony. They would turn around and face the congregation and the choir would lead the worship. And uh, it, it really did help, uh, certainly on occasions. And uh, thus one day I decided I would change the order of service without telling anybody. So just at the time I'm about to say, uh, now let's turn to the Word of God, the, 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 it was, you know, it was there. It was just part of the routine. Uh, tried and tested. Uh, one of the choir members reaches for his hymn book. And I said, now let's just turn to the Word of God. Because the Word of God was at the other side of the seat. And he literally fell off the seat. Because um, it was just... And it threw him. And, and oh, the stick I got for that. You wouldn't believe. Because uh, I had altered the order of service. And that just wasn't good. Churches love the routine. They love to fall into the track of doing the same thing time after time after time. Well, as we continue in this Good News of Great Joy for All People series, uh, I'm entitling my sermon, Challenging the Religious Status Quo. First of all, um, by way of introduction, let's just consider, if you will, Jesus from the inside out. I don't know whether uh, Peter or, or James or somebody else who, who uh, would like to write a book, I think that would make a great title for a book. Uh, maybe it already is, and I've just not found it. But Jesus from the inside out. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus challenging the teaching, challenging the standards, and, and often the basic principles of the religious leaders of his day. And here in our reading tonight, in Luke 20, 41, uh, reading through 21.4, Jesus again clashes head-on with the religious authorities. As he tackles three very fundamental traditional aspects of religious belief, religious practice, and religious observance. For this reason, I've entitled the sermon, Challenging the Religious Status Quo. Status quo is a Latin phrase. It simply means the state in which. A simple definition might be the way things currently are or the normal conditions. Ronald Reagan once famously said, status quo, you know, is Latin for the mess we're in. Now, in our reading tonight, Jesus challenges the way things currently are in his day, or the mess of the religious traditions that he speaks into. Now, as I thought about this, um, I thought a possible Scottish uh, defense of maintaining the status quo would be that expression, it's a been. Uh, if you need a translation, it's always been. Uh, it's a been uh, is a phrase that has frustrated many a visionary and innovative pastor especially when followed by the words, and it'll A, B. <laughs> now here as elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus sees things and defines them very differently from the people he lives and works among. That's why I'm looking at this as Jesus from the inside out. 
This was exactly the same point, of course, that God had made to the Old Testament prophet Samuel when he had commissioned him with the task of finding a successor to King Saul. When Samuel saw Chesse's first son, Eliab, he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord, for Samuel 16, verse 6. But listen to what God said to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel had each of Jesse's well-built, rugged sons brought before him, thinking that God's Spirit would lead him to anoint one of them. And then finally, they had David. At this stage, a wee slip of a shepherd boy, though the Bible says he was ruddy and handsome, had him brought in from the, the, the fields where he was tending the flocks. And when Samuel saw him, the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. The Lord looks on the heart. He does not look at the things the way men look at them. I think that's very important for us to remember, um, not just in the general everyday routine of life, but especially more specifically when it comes to matters of faith, of spiritual experience and doctrinal truth. The Lord looks on the heart. He does not look at things the way man looks at them. Jesus is so radically different from the religious leaders of his day that they have actually repeatedly assumed that he is the one in error. Hence that barrage of questions that they put to him in the preceding verses to our reading this evening. Our senior pastor Peter uh, uh, preached a sermon on that. How they, they were trying to trap him in his questions. But now it's his turn, and Jesus turns the tables by asking these people a question of his own. And so in uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, Jesus corrects or attempts to correct doctrinal error. Now, Jesus' question gets right to the heart of the matter. Namely, what the Sadducees and the Pharisees thought about the Messiah. Matthew tells us that there was another question preceding the one that we have here in Luke 20. In Matthew 22, 41 through 44, Matthew there records for us while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them what do you think about the Christ whose son is he the son of David they replied Jesus then refers them to Psalm 110 to consider what King David himself said about the Messiah the religious leaders recognized that the Messiah would be a descendant of David And in fact, uh, the commentators tell us that the rabbis would often quote this messianic psalm to prove their point. But Jesus interrupts the harmony of their answers by asking an awkward question. If Messiah is David's Lord, how can he be David's son? And here was a riddle for them to solve. Now, the only logical conclusion that they can reach is that Messiah must be both God and man. As eternal God, Messiah is David's Lord. But as man, he is David's son. A theme that Paul picks up in Romans 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures 
regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now just days before this incident had taken place, um, Mark tells us it's in the temple courts, the multitudes on the road to Jerusalem had acclaimed Jesus as the son of David. And he had not rebuked them. But by applying Psalm 110 and verse 1 to himself, Jesus claims to be Israel's promised Messiah, the Son of God. So why don't the religious leaders believe in him? The Apostle John gives us the reason. In John 12, 37 following, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their, their eyes or understand with their hearts nor turn or I would heal them. Warren Wearsby um, says of these religious leaders, they did not have the courage to confess the truth, and they persecuted those who did affirm faith in in Jesus Christ. Christ's question silenced his enemies and ended their public challenges, but they would not admit defeat. Isn't that incredibly sad? They presented with the truth. They wouldn't accept the truth that could set them free. And they turn and they reject that for a truth of their own making. Back in chapter 1, Luke had told his friend Theophilus that before writing this gospel, he has investigated. And he has researched everything from the beginning so that what we have here is an orderly account concerning the life of Jesus. Now, the Jewish people were in error because they did not investigate the truth about Jesus thoroughly. Let me explain what I mean by that. Remember, Paul says to Timothy, he says, you have known the Scriptures from infancy, the Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. And what Scriptures is he talking about? Well, it's no other than the Old Testament. At this stage, the New Testament hasn't been compiled. It hasn't been brought together. So there is enough evidence in the teaching in the Old Testament. There's good gospel, if you will, in the Old Testament. Enough gospel message concerning Jesus to bring us to that place of enlightenment that we too might have the word of life that brings us salvation. But the Jewish people were in error because they did not investigate the truth of Jesus thoroughly. If they had, they would have soon discovered that he was not actually Jesus of Nazareth, as they often referred to him as. But in fact, he was Jesus of Bethlehem as foretold by their own prophets, who would be the Messiah. As I pondered that during the week, I thought, you know, how many of the problems that exist in our society and in our churches today are because men and women have taken us away from the central, fundamental truths as revealed in the Word of God. If the foundation of the prophets and the apostles is ignored or reinterpreted, or maybe that should be misinterpreted, then we shouldn't be surprised by the problems that will immediately arise. Just pause with me 
for an example. Have you ever stopped to consider how much chaos and heartache is around us in the church and around us in the world because of a basic lack of acceptance of the principles laid out in Genesis? Just right back there into the creation story as God's Word declares it to us. Do you know, I can trace problems like abortion, homosexuality, gender role confusion, and the principles of headship in the home and the church, but to name a few, right back into the fact that the church, many don't believe the fundamental truth as revealed back in Genesis. Now, if church doctrine, the stuff that you and I are taught, the stuff that you and I believe, and the stuff that you and I form our practices and, and our activity out of, isn't rooted in the Word of God, then our practice and teaching will very quickly veer away. Veer away from the truth. Surely as it did with the Pharisees. And the further the church veers away from the truth, the less and less it can claim to be Christ's or Christian. Now since our eternal destiny is dependent on what we think about Jesus, this question, what do you think about the Christ, is like a key that opens or closes the door to salvation. John, the apostle, writing in his first letter says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. And remember Jesus himself in John 17 and verse 3 interprets what eternal life is about. It's not just simply living forever, forever in a kind of perpetual state of this current experience that we have. Jesus says that eternal life is that we might know the God who sent him and the Christ who brings that life. Now the Pharisees' ex expectation of Messiah would be that he would restore Israel's greatness as it had been during the days of David and Solomon. And since they missed the central truth regarding Jesus' identity, they were not to be trusted as reliable teachers. That's the point Jesus is making in the next few verses. Someone once said to me many years ago, just asking them how their church was going, uh, they had recently installed a new uh, incumbent uh, pastor. And I said, um, you know, how's, basically, how's it going? They said, well, we're not actually sure if the person that's been installed as our new minister is actually a born-again Christian. Not sure that he was a saved man but then they concluded, but however, he's a really good pastor. No, he isn't. You see, he may be a good visitor, or he may be a very caring person, but a pastor in the biblical definition of the word, he isn't. See how easily we can veer away from that central fundamental truth and take ourselves into error. Jesus warns that such people are not reliable teachers. And that's the second point I want, that Jesus actually cautions against spiritual inconsistency. 
the final verses there in chapter 20. Now, God may be the only person able to look at the heart, but we can learn how to become good fruit inspectors, as a friend of mine told me many years ago. Now, consider the following description of a group of people. Their superior intellects and scholarly background put them academically well ahead of most people in their community. They were highly respectable. They were always presented well and dressed. Uh, they were always presented well dressed and enjoyed celebrity status in all levels of society. They were publicly well known for their incredibly generous benevolent gifts and they always occupied the best seats at social and religious gatherings. Compare them if you will, with these guys. They had wasted their academic and intellectual ability on man-made concepts and principles, having no regard for understanding the mind and the heart of God. Their outward respectable appearance masked the reality that their hearts were moral cesspools, devoid of any power to change. Their public celebrity status was simply a substitute to cover up their inner weaknesses, insecurity, and lack of any real spiritual discernment or self-awareness. I have, of course, just described the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. The first description was as they saw themselves. The second was as God saw them. The Apostle John warns the church to, or to exercise real spiritual discernment or to be good fruit inspectors, if you like. First John 4, verses 1 to 6. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I believe that Jesus is at great pains to ensure that his disciples then and now learn to discern between genuine and false teachers and leaders. Hypocritical and dishonest people are dangerous to have around, especially when they're given positions of leadership in the community of God's people. That is precisely why Jesus warns his disciples to stay away from people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is also why elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul and others insist that anyone who is given the charge of leading or teaching is qualified to do so. Now think about this, if you will. New Testament qualifications for appointing people to places of authority and leadership have much more to do with personal holiness and spiritual development than either academic preparation or personal ability. Just because a person is able to do it is never the starting point for discerning if they ought to be doing it. 
These religious leaders were not concerned to get God known, but rather to get themselves noticed. And so Jesus points out the inconsistency between what the teachers of the law taught and what they practiced. Their lives were bound up in greed and pride. You see, they desired, first of all, show. The flowing robes and the fancy clothes. They desired public attention. They wanted to be acknowledged and greeted in the marketplaces. They desired celebrity status. They wanted the important seats at the synagogue and the banquets, etc. And they desired personal wealth, even taking from those who did not have much, i.e. the widows. Leon Morris in the Tyndale New Testament commentary series says, While they liked thus to shine before men, they were careless about how they appeared before God. Morris, very helpfully in his little commentary, explains the practice of the day that prohibited the scribes from accepting money for teaching. They had to make their knowledge available without charge. I know some of you are related to Ian Leach, and he may even be here tonight, I'm sure. I remember as a young man, Ian Leach coming to our church to give the New Life Seminars to Kirkwell Baptist Church some 30 years ago. That's a scary thought, but it's true. Um, Somewhere about 30 years ago, he came up, and, and one of our folks said, I'm not sure I want to pay a fiver for this because salvation's free. To which Ian replied, salvation is free, but my seminar's a fiver. (laughs) The scribes had to make their knowledge available without charge. However, there was nothing preventing people giving monetary gifts uh, to the teachers, and so the teachers simply taught that such giving was meritorious. It was the kind of give and you will be blessed, the forerunner herald cry of the unscrupulous TV evangelist or faith healer. Morris uh, further comments, eventually, sorry, evidently, some of these scribes encouraged impressionable widows to make gifts beyond their means, believing that somehow it gained them merit. And by this, they literally devoured these widows' homes. So in other words, you can see that these people were simply in it for themselves and what they could get out of it. Jesus had another criticism of these leaders, and it was to do with their prayer life. He said that their prayers had more length than depth to them. And a truth that you and I need to take on board, that we're not heard in heaven by the number of words you can string together, but you're heard in heaven by the sincerity and the honesty of your heartfelt words. Remember just a few weeks ago, when Peter was preaching on the lesson of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee basically standing before God and looking up full of piety and and self-worth says, God, basically you must be so proud that I'm one of yours. And I do this and this and this and this. And the tax collector couldn't even look up. He's ashamed to be in the presence of God. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says that the latter rather than the former goes home justified before God. You know, there are two very real catastrophes happening here. The first one is that the people are being conned. The deliberate hypocrisy of these leaders allowed them to cover up the truth about themselves and enabled them to fool and exploit other people. Of all scams, religious ones are the worst. And these religious scammers had substituted play-acting for true worship and the house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves and robbers. Jesus' own words. Now, the undiscerning, the easily laid members of the public were ensnared by their deceitfulness and actually thought them to be men of God. Jesus, however, saw them as people who were to be avoided at all costs. Do you know, sadly, 
there are times when we must conclude, conclude that there are some people, even though they may claim to be Christian, that we're better off having nothing to do with them. Secondly, another catastrophe is, and, and actually far more seriousness, is that the Messiah is rejected. In a matter of days, the crowds will reject the Messiah and call for the Roman oppressors to crucify him. Their failure to admit their sin and to repent would ultimately result in the ruin for the nation and the total destruction of the temple when the Romans would sack the city in just over three decades later. But remember, these men are the experts in the Bible. But they fail to apply the truth, its truth to their own lives. And worse still was that they distorted the application of the Bible, exploiting the people they taught for their own personal gratification. Their religion was a matter of external observance, not internal transformation. Jesus says that these teachers would be punished most severely. That's a warning to myself and to others who uh, believe that God has called us into position of authority in the church. Those who have greater knowledge are to be held on the day of judgment more accountable. James, in his letter, chapter 3, verse 1, says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I have an incredibly vivid imagination, and I imagine two lines of people standing before the Lord on judgment day. All the church members standing in a great big long queue to come before God to receive the rewards and to receive the accolade, well done, good and faithful servant. And there I am standing in a slightly shorter queue, a much shorter queue of church leaders, teachers and pastors to come before God for greater judgment in terms of the accountability. Jesus had given this group of people so many opportunities, but they had wasted them. And now it was too late. You know, God takes no pleasure over the judgment and the destruction of the rebellious. Jesus' attitude remains the same. We hear it, his words in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, How often I have longed to, but you were not willing. If you're rejecting the truth about God tonight, Jesus longs to cover you with his truth, to embrace you with his love and his power, and to change your life. But while you remain hard and cold and distant, he still remains longing for you. But if you're not willing, then one day the door will close and it will be too late. And then we have these few verses at the beginning of chapter 21, where Jesus commends sacrificial worship. Following naturally on from what Jesus has just said about the teachers of the law and their attitude towards widows, he pointed to the rich people giving their offerings and a poor widow who was putting all her meager resources into one of the 13 collection boxes that stood in the court of the women or the treasury as this part of the temple was known. And the rich gave out of their abundance and had loads left over for themselves. Their giving was intended to be noticed by other people. Indeed, we're told that many rich people would make pompous, ostentatious gestures as they deposited their offerings into these horn-shaped receptacles. But the widow gave out of her poverty and had nothing left to live on. Her free will offering, uh, this two lecta, 
was proportionately and significantly larger than all the others who had put in out of their wealth. Now, various commentators have suggested that the amount that she put in was simply the minimum offering uh, that someone was allowed to put into the treasury. But Jesus, in what he says, shows that it's not the monetary value of the gift that matters in terms of sacrificial giving. It is not what we give, but what we have left that God sees. In this sense, I believe we can understand that Jesus' words mean that she gave more than all of the others put together. Her giving and her worship was sacrificial. And I wonder, can that be said of me tonight? Is my giving sacrificial? Is my worship sacrificial? Can it be said of you? So in conclusion, Jesus knows us inside out. Jesus sees us from the inside out. So what does he see in us tonight? Would he be content that we properly understand the word of God and are allowing it to shape our opinion about him as the Christ? Would he, consist, would he see consistency between what we know we do, what he knows we do publicly, and what we think privately? Does he know that the face we wear to church is simply a mask that covers up a dark reality? Would he commend our response in worship because he knows that our sacrificial worship comes from the heart, a heart fully committed to him? So do you want to stay the same as you are and maintain the status quo? Do you need to change? Question to us as a church. Do we need to change? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are head over everything to the church. You're the one who writes open letters to the churches in Asia and recorded for us in the revelation of John. Lord, if you were to write an open letter to each one of us as individuals tonight, what would you say to us? If you were to write an open letter to us as a church fellowship, Lord, what would you commend us for? And what would you want us to change? Lord, our hearts are open to hearing what your Spirit would say to the church in our day and generation. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to